It's one thing to want new infrastructure. It's another thing to get a project through a nearly impenetrable thicket of federal, state, and local environmental rules and the nearly inevitable lawsuits. That's where the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council comes in. For details, we turn to the council's newly appointed executive director, Eric Batel. Mr. Batel, good to have you with us. Great. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. And I think there might be a misconception that this Permitting Improvement Steering Council came in as a result of the infrastructure bill, but actually you predate it by quite a number of years. That's correct. The Permitting Council was established as a part of the Fixing America's Surface Transportation Act in 2015. It was a add-on sponsored by Senators Portman and McCaskill, uh, who were looking at permitting reform, and they put the Title 41 onto the FAST Act. And so the FAST 41 is the piece of legislation that applies to the Permitting Council, that established the Permitting Council and laid out kind of the rules of the road for how we are to operate and uh, conduct our business, established the members and our structure, and identified the covered sectors where we have the opportunity to provide additional support to project sponsors as they navigate the uh, federal permitting review process. And briefly, what are the sectors over which you have some purview? It won't be brief. Uh, we actually we have cover 18 different sectors. I won't go through the whole list. The information's available on permits.performance.gov. We have a number of resources on that website, but they cover things like renewable energy, conventional energy, electricity transmission, surface transportation, ports and infrastructure, water resources, broadband, also with the recent CHIPS Act. Semiconductor facilities are also a covered sector, as well as carbon capture. That was a large investment in IIJA, as well as the Inflation Reduction Act, and a number of others. So, you know, we cover uh, a vast array of different infrastructure sectors, and really it is uh, an opportunity for us to provide that federal support to project sponsors and convene the agencies to help identify a realistic and attainable schedule and hold them to that so that we have some reliability and predictability in the process. So your issue is really with other agencies at the federal and state and sometimes local level where projects get held up because sponsors, heck, they'd go ahead and build it, you know, in 10 weeks if they could, if there were no permitting requirements. Is that a fair way to characterize it? I think generally. Uh, I mean, we are, I wouldn't characterize it as an issue, but it is an opportunity for us. Each federal agency has their own authorizing statute that uh, directs them to do a certain thing for their mission, whether it be protecting wetlands, whether it be building roadways, whether it be building airports or supporting the nation's energy infrastructure. Each of them have their own mission, and not all the federal agencies' missions are always complementary. And so there is you know, some conflicting purpose. And so what the Permanent Council does is it comes in and provides some additional support to the project teams, both the sponsor and the federal agencies, to help them kind of understand what the expectations are for the permitting process, help facilitate those conversations so that there's no surprises, lay out a realistic and attainable project schedule that will dictate how the sequence of events and the timing of those events and hold the agencies and the sponsors accountable to those schedules. That provides some transparency and predictability to the process, but also it allows folks to be accountable to their specific actions as part of the project life cycle. And what we do is, you know, as issues come up, we convene the entities, the agencies and the sponsors to try and work through those issues. There's an elevation process. If we come to a particularly sticky issue that needs higher level input, the field staff can't uh, resolve it on their own. 
But ultimately, we are not a deciding body. We are a facilitating and support body. Well, let me ask you about a hypothetical. Suppose I want to build a solar farm, one of those collector types of sites, and I need to run the wires across state lines to get it into a particular electrical grid. So now I've got two states involved, maybe a county. There might be a zoning issue depending on if it was a farm now and I'm going to turn it into a solar type of panel farm. What types of things come up there and how do you help people get through it? So we are, you know, as a federal agency, we are somewhat limited to our ability to influence the federal permitting decisions, but not necessarily state or local permitting decisions. But what we can do is support those conversations and provide the information that those other entities may need. We can't direct, or not that we can direct our federal partners, but we can at least, you know, convene that discussion and make sure that senior officials are involved and the issues get resolved. It's a little bit trickier when you get to state and local entities because we don't have that same ability to force the issue. But what we can do is ensure that they are at the table early, that we work with them to identify the types of permits that they may need in the process, and make sure that we are providing a, a roadmap to provide that information to them in a timely manner so that we identify what are the predicate actions that ultimately lead to a decision so that we keep that momentum and if there's going to be a challenge, you know, getting some of that information or getting that decision, we know early so that we can start to mitigate for that. We're speaking with Eric Badel. He's executive director of the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council. And since the passage of the infrastructure bill, has your pace of work picked up? And what kinds of things are you dealing with as a result of that law? The uh, Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act, as well as the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act, all three, provided you know, a significant infusion of capital into the infrastructure markets. And we are seeing the result of that. A lot of those projects have not yet fully come to delivery. You know, they're still either in the planning phase. You know, this infusion, a lot of that money was not anticipated. And so projects are getting off the ground currently. We anticipate to see a large volume of projects come through, and we expect to expand our portfolio over the course of the next several years as these projects move into the permitting phase. And in response to that, you know, we received $350 million through the Inflation Reduction Act, and that was to our Environmental Review Improvement Fund. And that is a fund that the Permanent Council administers to support investments in strategies and tools that will facilitate a more efficient environmental review process. And so with that $350 million, we are working with the agencies to identify critical needs that they have to themselves respond to the influx of projects that are coming before them, the applications that are going to be surging. And a lot of that is going to be in personnel, just putting bodies in seats to be able to receive and process these applications is a critical piece of ensuring that we maintain progress. But there's also broader tools that we are looking at, IT tools that will facilitate a more efficient transfer of information, more efficient tracking of information so that we can improve on our transparency and accountability in the overall process. The Permitting Council is not immune to the needs of having able, capable individuals in seats to be able to intake this. And so we anticipate also growing our staffing some over the next couple of years. And then there's also a broader surge of hiring that needs to occur across the federal government. And we're working with the Office of Personnel Management right now to identify capable project managers that agencies will be able to hire to help manage these projects as they come through. So there's an outstanding listing on USA Jobs for a government-wide project manager position so that we have capable candidates that apply, they get on the list, 
And then the agencies are able to interview and select folks to fill much needed positions to help ensure that we are moving these projects forward accountably and responsibly. And getting to the council itself, I mean, you've got the council and then you've got the staff. What is the makeup of the council? What types of people are on there and where do they come from? Sure. We have uh, 13 member agencies. And again, I won't go through the laundry list, but it's, you know, the the big players in infrastructure. So we have Department of Transportation. We have the Department of Energy, the Department of Commerce. But we also have councils such as FERC, uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. We have also the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation and a number of other agencies that all have a role in developing infrastructure and that are part of those covered sectors that I mentioned at the top. And though those agencies are represented on the council by deputy secretaries or their equivalent, so the number two person in charge at the agency who has visibility into the operations of those agencies, and we meet on at least a quarterly basis. We bring business to the council as it relates to overall government-wide solutions, but also very focused discussions on specific topics that are relevant, whether it be surge hiring, are there programmatic solutions that we can look at that would affect a wide swath of the agencies and the sectors that they touch. And then we have you know, more specific conversations on projects and sectors separate from the council that also enable us to have visibility into how those projects are advancing and what challenges they may be encountering so that we can then learn from that, elevate that conversation, and then have a best practice you know, that we can apply across government so that we are learning from our experience and taking those lessons learned and applying them moving forward so that we can always have continuous improvement in the process. And in a nation that sues one another over the color of a mailbox or something, so many large infrastructure projects, even when people do what they should with respect to permitting and they get all the T's crossed and the I's dotted, lawsuits come up from different groups ancillary to those projects in that area. How does the council deal with that or what do you advise people on how to deal with that? There's nothing really you can do to stop a lawsuit or in any way you can prevail upon a court to toss it out. Yeah, that is a uh, that's a tricky topic. Ultimately, the, the council itself has no role and no authority in the litigation sure. of individual projects. But what we can do, and this is just kind of a general project development best practice, is Ensure that you are engaging in meaningful public outreach to identify those parties, whether it be groups of stakeholders, whether it be individual landowners who may be affected by the project, who are likely to be concerned or potentially oppose a project, and engage with them early, understand their issues, and help to hopefully identify It may not be something where they are a supporter, but you mitigate their opposition and you find win-win solutions that will ultimately allow you to proceed and avoid some litigation. You're not, as you you say, you're not going to avoid every suit that may possibly come down. There are some parties who are going to sue no matter what. And some of it is not necessarily on the merits of the project, but they're trying to make a broader statement. And that's the role that they play. What we are trying to do is look at project-specific instances and ensure that we are engaging those folks who are most likely materially affected by the project and understand their concerns and make sure that we build into the project definition a way that will address those concerns and hopefully mitigate any sort of adverse effect that they will experience. And adding all of this up, are you confident that some of the funded infrastructure will actually turn into infrastructure at some point? 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm not concerned that we're not going to build these things. I, I'm, I'm not even concerned that we're not building them fast enough yet. These are big projects. A lot of these are very big, complex projects. But at the end of the day, you know, there is something along the lines of 96% of the federally funded projects go through the most routine approval uh, for permits, whether it be a categorical exclusion under NEPA, whether it be a programmatic agreement that you know, structures a, a more facilitated and efficient review of the environmental review process, a nationwide permit for the Clean Water Act, and, and other kind of standardized permits that don't require that high level of rigor and lengthy process. The vast majority of projects go through those sorts of routine processes. We do have you know, a few of the larger, more complex that, that take longer, that require an environmental impact statement. And those are the ones that get the headlines because they are oftentimes, by definition, the most impactful, but they are also oftentimes the most economically beneficial and most controversial. And so, you know, that takes time. But if we do it smartly, if we are intentional about how we do our outreach and our planning and consider the effects uh, make sure that we are listening to the public's concerns and, and factor those into the project design and the alternatives that we are considering. We can move through the process efficiently. We have to be smart about it, but I think it can be done. And that's a lot of what the Permitting Council is here to do, is to help provide those strategies to project teams to ensure that we are moving through the process on a predictable and accountable timeline. Eric Badel is Executive Director of the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council. Thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration, came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up 
in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be. 
versus being at a place where others think you should be? One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.